Let's pray together. Father, you are amazing. You are worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise, worthy to be lifted up. I pray that we would have hearts of worship this morning, that we would continue not just to worship in song, but to worship in the study of your word, the proclamation of your word. Lord, I pray that that would be honoring to you, that that would lift you up. I pray that our hearts would be drawn into that, that our minds would be drawn into that, that we would uh, worship you, that we would honor you, that we would love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Help us to do that this morning. Lord, as we turn to theology, something that can be heady, something that uh, can seem abstract and removed from us, help us to understand that the study of you is not abstract and not removed from us. It's essential in relating to you that we know who you are. And so help us this morning, help us to dig in, help us to work hard at doing that and help me as I, as I proclaim here, help me to be clear. Lord, I pray that this would be honoring to you. I pray that you would be lifted up, that you would draw them into yourself. Pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Exodus chapter three. Exodus chapter 3. Many years ago, when I was entering into theological study at uh, Moody Bible Institute, I had a phone call with, uh, with Mr. Duncan and asked him what in the world I should study because they have various options there, etc. And I was asking for guidance from him. And, and uh, of course, he was good to give that. And for various reasons, he encouraged me to study theology while I was at school. So being obedient and submissive, that's what I did. I studied theology while I was at school. Mr. Duncan said so. I thought I better do it. So, uh, so I went and I studied theology, and I was a theology major. But I'll tell you what, in that four-year degree, I grew to very nearly despise theology. And part of the reason was because people like me were studying it, people who have a tendency to be know-it-alls. And especially when you get into the theology major, that was the major, particularly at my school, and I've heard it's the same elsewhere, where it's kind of a competition to see who's the, the rightest or the smartest, okay? I hate those competitions, okay? I just hate those. And so I went through and got my, my bachelor's degree in theology, all the while just not really caring about theology. So then I continue on in life, right? Had kids, you know, continued on in marriage, encountered a few things in life and started asking questions like why certain things were the way they were or what does the Bible say about such and such? The questions like this that are important, questions that life brings up for us, and you know the answers to those questions are theology. When you dig into the word to answer a question, what does the Bible say about such and such, you're doing theology. And I had a lot of questions. And I started to love theology because it wasn't a class with a bunch of eggheads in a corner somewhere. It was digging into God's word to figure out answers to these questions. And so with this whole series we're doing, it's a lot of theology. And I, I hope that we're able to communicate to you and bring you along with us that it's not 
just some distant thing. It's not just something that happens in, uh, in, in ivory towers where people are debating things that are irrelevant. Theology is digging into God's word to answer questions like, what does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about divorce? What does the Bible say about who I am? That's theology. That's theology. And so you can see that there's value in that. There's real value in studying that. That's what we do. That's why we study God's word, because we want these answers. We, we need guidance. We need to understand this. We need to know this truth. And so I went from a, a student who got a degree in something I really didn't care about now to wishing I could go back and redo some of those classes, because now I really care. Now I have those questions for myself, and I deal with people who have those questions. And the answer to those questions we find by digging into God's word. And when we rub passages together... That's theology. That's theology. And so that's what we're talking about today. So does theology matter? Does theology matter? Well, in uh, the winter of 2010, 2011, most of you remember, the various of the youth went on a missions trip. And we went back to New Jersey, and we spent some time in Philadelphia and in New York. And uh, we were visiting with Amun Ghazala and uh, Amun and Ghazala and um, spent some time with them, just a couple of days with them. And Amun took us to a Hindu temple there in New Jersey. And so we went into this temple. I don't know if anybody's ever been in a Hindu temple, but they are not like this. Okay. Different. Okay. So we went in there and not, it looks different and you got to take your shoes off and various things are different about the building and the structure and whatever. Those things are, are, you know, a little odd, but that's not the key. What was really fascinating to me was when we went inside and saw that there were these kind of stages, kind of like this, but kind of off to the back and more of a presentation area or whatever. And there was this God presented and uh, a statue, a statue of a God, an idol presented. And it's sitting there. And I don't remember, I don't remember anything about the thing, except that they brought him out a plate of Oreos and they, and they gave him a plate of Oreos and then they pulled the curtain closed because it was time for him to have his snack and he needed some privacy. He needed to eat his Oreos. Okay. Now I like Oreos as much as the next guy, probably more than the next guy. But I thought, what kind of God is this that requires the priest to bring out Oreos and present Oreos to him and then close the curtains so he can eat them in private? What do you think happened to those Oreos? While the curtain was closed, someone came and got them, put them in the back. You know, he's not going to eat them anyway. You can give him stale Oreos, right? Just reuse them. If you dip them in milk, it, t- it makes them okay, but I, <laughs> I don't think he was able to dip them in milk. And while we were there, Amun, being Amun, asked Chris Caldwell. He would pray for us with this, this priest who was with us and our group of 12. Asked Chris if he would pray. And I was struck by the stark contrast listening to Chris Pray in the name of Jesus Christ to the eternal and independent God who does not need to be served Oreos. You talk about a difference. Does theology matter? Enormous, enormous difference. The contrast between the Hindu God of that temple and the God of the Bible couldn't be clearer. The Hindu God had to be fed He had to be taken care of. He had to be provided for. He had to have the curtain closed so he could eat in private. And the God of the Bible is independent. 
independent. So while we're looking at Exodus chapter 3, here we have Moses up on the mountain. He sees this bush. The bush is burning, and he goes over to it, right? And this is the famous commissioning of Moses, right? He's going to go into the land. He's going to, he's going to uh, proclaim freedom to the people. He's, he's going to speak to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. He's going to be the, the deliverer, the human deliverer on earth of God's people, right? And so Moses asked this question in verse 13. He said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now that's powerful. That's powerful. I am who I am. Now there's a lot going on here and we're going to try and unpack this in our message today. One of the things is that God is giving Moses and the people of Israel his name. And in this context, in this culture, giving your name was a communication of who you are. It's not just, hey, my name's Chuck, right? It's a communication about your character, about your nature. It's a communication about who you are. And when you know someone's name, you know who they are in this culture. And so, first of all, he's giving them his name. Now, the name that he gives is, it's very compact, and there's a lot in there, so we're going to try and unpack it. I am, or I am who I am, tells us various things about God, and we're, we're going to talk about those. Now, it, the, word, the, the phrase there, I am who I am, is very closely related to the name that we use Yahweh, which we often pronounce as Jehovah, which is a English anyway. It, it's gone through German, and we pronounce it in our English way as Jehovah. But it's it's Yahweh, okay? And that's his name. It usually comes across capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible, right? That's that's often how it's how it's translated, uh, or how, how how it comes across in the English version. And what it's talking about there is the verb to be or to exist. And he's saying, I am who I am. The first thing that tells us about him is that God is self-existent. He's self-existent. Existent. His existence is not dependent upon anything in creation. It's not dependent upon anything else. It's just dependent upon himself. Now think about your own existence. Are you self-existent? Did you bring yourself about? Or do you maintain, sustain yourself? Do you, are you only dependent upon yourself to exist? No, you're dependent on all kinds of things to exist. We're dependent on all manner of things in this created order, not to mention dependence upon God himself for us to exist God is totally different. He is self-existent. He existed before there was anything else created. The only thing his existence rests upon or is dependent upon is himself. He is self-existent. Now contrast that with us. Not only did we not exist before creation, we didn't begin to exist even until conception 
More than that, we depend upon God holding together the entire universe, including holding us together. We owe our existence to him. We owe our ongoing existence to him also. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He maintains it. He keeps it going. And should he stop, so would we. He maintains it. We are dependent, but God is the great I am and is self-existent. God is also self-attesting, self-attesting. His knowledge is only from himself, and he has his own criterion for what is truth. He doesn't have to look outside of himself to some higher authority or standard to attest to what is true. If something is truth, it is because God made it truth. God himself is true simply by virtue of his existence as God. Now, I think the contrast with us is very clear. Postmodernism may tell us that, uh, that we are the source of truth, that we, we are the judge of truth, and the truth for you that you've determined to be true may be different than my truth or this person's truth over here. It's kind of dependent upon who we are and, and how we think about it. And we can come to different conclusions, and our truths may be different. Postmodernism may tell us that. What does the Bible say about it? The Bible tells us again and again that it is God and his word that are the truth. Think of John 17, 17. John 17, 17, where Jesus says in prayer to God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Interesting, it doesn't say your word is true. But your word is truth. It is the definer of what is true. The truth that we find within ourselves is what Jeremiah is talking about. The truth that we find within ourselves is what Jeremiah is talking about in Jeremiah 17, 9. Write that down. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So when postmodernism says that we ourselves are a spring, a well of truth, and we can come to our own, it comes from within us. Well, it's polluted. Jeremiah 17, right there, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We need, we need as creation, a standard of truth outside of ourselves, not just my own. Mine's polluted. I need a standard beyond me. That standard is God himself. But God, who is the great I am, is self-attesting. He is self-attesting. He's also self-justifying. Just as there is no standard of truth beyond God himself, there's no standard of righteousness beyond God himself. His very nature is righteousness. And so he is his own criterion for what is right. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 says this, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he or Isaiah 45, 19. I, the Lord speak the truth. I declare what is right. God is self justifying. Now contrast that with us pretty clear, right? Even in your own mind, we are either righteous or we're not righteous based upon our obedience to God's righteousness. We don't create our own. 
We're not self-justifying, though we try to be. But we're not. So we are either righteous or not based upon our obedience to his righteousness. The standard is outside of ourselves. It's not within. It's outside of ourselves. And of course, any reading through scripture or any observation in your own life, and you can see that the standard is too high for us. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 9 that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The standard of righteousness, not only is it outside of us, but it is unattainable by us. But God is self-justifying. The God of the Bible is the great I am. He is self-justifying, he's self-attesting, and he's self-existent. Exodus 3 is a very central and a very powerful passage where God reveals himself to man in his true character and in his true nature. Another very powerful passage that deals with the subject of, of God's nature is Acts 17. So I'd like you to flip over there if you would. Acts chapter 17. We're going to come back to Exodus 3. We're going to spend a bit in Acts 17. Acts 17, of course, is where Paul is visiting Athens, and he finds people gathered together, uh, philosophizing and theologizing with one another, discussing various things at the Areopagus. And so he's there with them. He walks along. He, he sees all these statues, and he sees all this stuff, and he begins to address the people, right? And he's sharing the gospel with them and telling them about who God really is. And here's what we read. We read that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Acts 17, we're going to read verses 24 and 25. So again, he's telling these people who don't know the God of the Bible who he is. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all man life and breath and everything. That's a different God. That's a different God than the one we saw being served Oreos in New Jersey. That is a different God. First of all, God existed without creation. He's the one who made the world and everything in it. That implies he was there before it existed. There was a time when he was all that existed, and then he decided, I'm going to make heaven and earth, and he made it. He was there beforehand to bring it about. God existed without creation. God made the world, so he existed without it and is therefore independent of it. He caused creation, but creation has no influence Upon him, God existed without creation. And God exists without the need for creation even now. God's life or existence is not supported somehow by creation, by the created order. He doesn't need creation or mankind to provide anything for him. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need us to build him a place to live. He doesn't need a little plate of Oreos. He's the one who gives to all mankind life 
and breath and everything. He exists without need of creation. Let me read you this from Psalm 50. Psalm 50 verses 10 through 12. They say a similar thing. This is God speaking and he says, Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. He owns it all. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need us to provide something for him. He is independent. God's independence means that he does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Right? That's God's independence. His independence. One of the most basic and essential truths about God is that he is independent. He doesn't need creation. He doesn't need mankind for anything. Another related truth to this is that God is eternal. God is eternal. We're going to stay in the same passage here in Acts chapter 17 for a moment and look at this. God is eternal. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, but he's also the Lord of time. Let me read to you from Acts 17, 24 through 26, and then down to 31. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Down to verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has no beginning or end. God has no beginning or end. I've got a list of like eight verses here that that are just a few verses that testify to that same thing. But I want to I want us to look at Psalm 90 and verse two, where where the psalmist says from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting, all the way back, all the way back, beyond, draw, draw an arrow that way, it goes forever. Everlasting. And draw an arrow that goes that way forever. Everlasting. From all the way that way, infinitely, all the way this way, infinitely. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He existed prior to and completely independent of creation. Normally, we look at uh, creation, the Genesis 1 account, uh, Genesis 2. We look at that as the beginning. That's the beginning. When we talk about in the beginning, when we talk about that kind of stuff, we're pointing to that direction. And he was beyond it. He existed before it. God has no beginning or no end. Now, it's interesting that creation is the beginning of the created order. And yet, what do we read in John 1.1? You probably know it. What do you read in John 1.1? In the beginning was the word in the beginning was the word already. And the word is with God. The word was God. 
already he was there. Already he was there. So God has no beginning or end. God has no need to rush. He has no need to rush. Or. Flip, flip over to 2 Peter 3.8, if you would. 2 Peter 3.8. Psalm 90 mentioned it already, but 2 Peter is going to pull out some other things for us. Again, hang with me. I know this is theology. I know it can be a little thick, but there's a payoff. There's a payoff to studying who God is. You're in 2 Peter chapter 3. Read verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. One day is like a thousand years to him. And a thousand years is like a day. Think about your busiest day ever. Your busiest, absolute busiest day ever. I have no idea what that might be. I don't have any idea what that might be for me. But think about what's your busiest, busiest day ever. And then think about if you had a thousand years to plan that day out. A thousand years to arrange all the details, to put it all together, to make sense of the whole thing. Now, this is metaphorical language. Okay, It's not saying exactly uh, one equals a thousand, a thousand or a thousand years equals one day, etc. It's metaphorical language. He's talking about the fact that you're you're stressed and you're rushing through that difficult day. Things are packed tight together, right? You're having a difficult time navigating all the stuff you have for your day. Blow that thing up to a thousand years and imagine what that's like. Oh, I could plan that. I could put this detail there. I could arrange that. I can get that accomplished. I can get through the whole be no problem. That would be no problem. And that's what it's like for God. Again, that's just metaphorical. It's much larger than that. The point being, he doesn't have to rush. When you find out that news that, oh, you need to be somewhere like immediately and you're already late and how's that ever going to win? You're flying through town or whatever, you know, whatever. You're stressed about this. You're trying to make that all work. You didn't catch him off guard. You're rushing to get there. You're rushing to make this thing happen. He's outside of time. He's outside of time. You don't have to. He doesn't he doesn't have to rush like we do. He doesn't have to hustle and get through it. He's outside of it. God has no need to rush. God has no time limitations. He has no beginning or end. He has no need to rush. He has no time limitations. He's not limited or bound to time. But is free to act in time. Now, this is an interesting thing about God. You and I are bound to time forever. We're bound to time. Okay, we started at a, at a particular point. And our existence is tied to time, even into the future, even into eternity. It's bound to time. Scripture talks about the months changing in heaven. I, I don't understand how that works, but we somehow are bound to this time order. God, however, though he works in this order, he's not bound to it. He's free from it. He's able, because he's eternal, to be completely present right now in our time, and be completely pr present 2,000 years ago when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and to be completely pr present however many thousands of years ago when he created this world. He's able at the same time to be completely present everywhere. 
You and I will never have that in eternity. Even, af- even after death, we're not able to time travel. For us, it's time travel because we're bound to this continuum, as we say. But he has no time limitations, but he acts in time. I love that. He acts in time. He's not some deistic God that started the world spinning and then left it. He comes and acts in time. Think about Christ. When the fullness of time had come, sent his son. The fullness of time. He acted in time. He inserted himself. He got involved in time. Acts 1.7 says the same thing. It says that God has fixed times and seasons by his own authority. He's acted. He's arranged time by his own authority. God has no beginning or end. He has no need to rush. He has no time limitations. The Bible presents God as the Lord of time. Now, I said we're going to flip back to Exodus chapter 3. Now is the time to do that. Exodus chapter 3. Same verse. God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. He's self-existing and he's eternally present. He's eternally present. You could say. When I was five. Or you could say, I saw that movie when I was 10. Now, sometimes in a very odd way, we say when I'm 10, right? I, some parts of the country might use that, but we, we can't really say, I saw that movie when I am 10, because I'm not 10. I was 10 at one point, and when I was 10, I saw that movie. I was born at some point. I, this thing happened to me when I was in the past. What, is, what does God say about himself? He says, I am i am not i was am and will be we we could we can talk that way about god but ultimately he says i am think about uh john 8:58 john 8:58 flip over there real quick i know we're kind of bouncing around today but there's a payoff there's a payoff hang with me john 8:58 Remember a discussion going on. Jesus is talking here. Verse 58. Jesus says to them. Truly, truly, I say to you. Before Abraham was. I. Not was. That would be a pretty impressive statement. Right. Looking. Looking hundreds, hundreds of years in the past. To say I was before him. That would be a very impressive statement. It's not what he says. He says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Eternally present. Eternally present. That's the God of the Bible. That's who he presents himself to be. Not that he was and then he evolved and then he changed and he became something new and he's learning and growing. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am 
who I am. Always. That's the God of the Bible. I want to give this definition of eternal. This is from uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He says, God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being. He sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees events in time and he acts in time. God is independent and God is eternal. The Bible consistently and everywhere paints this picture of him. So what are the implications for our lives? What's the payoff? Okay, so we've studied theology for half an hour. So what? What's the payoff? Well, first of all, Romans 11.36 says this. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That is huge. That is huge. Why are we studying theology today? Why are we talking about God being independent and God being eternal? Why, why spend time on a Sunday morning doing that? Because we are here to worship. Whom are we worshiping? What's he like? What's he really like? He is before all things. He is above all. He is independent. He's eternal. He's before all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. These truths that we're talking about should make us very humbly aware of our own dependence and of the brevity of our lives. Since he is the independent creator, he also owns everything, absolutely everything. We talked about the cattle on a thousand hills, but he owns everything. He created it all. He can dispose of it as he wills. Another point there under he is before all things. There's a, there's a type of uh, false teaching, a theology called openness theology, or sometimes called process theology. And this, these issues that we're talking about right now are, are exactly where they go, they go wrong. Their view of things is that as God is progressing through time, he's bound to time. He's not Lord of time so that he's independent and able to act. He's bound to it. And so as you make a decision, he learns, oh, that's the decision they'll make in that. Oh, and then you, you learn, there's a big international thing that goes on. There's a, he, he learns from it and he's growing and he's, he's changing and he's going through process. This is God. He's learning and he's growing. He's very smart. He's very smart. He's like a computer that has all algorithms figured out for all of us can figure all these things out, but it's not 100%. He's playing the odds. That's process theology. That's openness theology. God is changing. God is growing. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is independent of this creation. He's self-existing, self-determining. He's also eternal. He's able to act in time. He sent his son, praise the Lord, in time. He acts in time, but he's also free from it, and he's present everywhere equally in it. He is before all things. To him be glory forever. Another implication. He is never late. He is never rushed. And he is never bored. His experience with time is categorically different than ours. He's not just really, really old. 
like he's been around forever, like we think, you know, someone who's been around forever has been around forever. He's not just really old. His experience with it is qualitatively different. His knowledge of the future is perfect, not because he has an algorithm that can calculate all the decisions in between now and then, but because he exists then. That was cool. (laughs) In Russia, if you're making a point and someone sneezes right then, that's confirmation that your point is true, right? I have no idea what this means. (laughs) Good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) He's never late. He's never rushed, and he's never bored. His experience with time is completely different. He's not just really old. His relationship with time is completely qualitatively different, not just quantitatively. His knowledge of the future is perfect. Because he is Lord of time, he acts in time with perfect patience, precision, and timing. Let me read a few verses. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. You ever thought, Lord... You have said you're going to do this. When is that going to happen? When frequently, right? When is that going to happen? God is never late. That was Second Peter 3, 9. That's the only one I'm going to look at there. Another implication. He does not need us for anything. He doesn't even need us for a relationship. Pastor Woody talked about the Trinity, handy little subject to, you know, cover in 45 minutes. It's no small feat. Within the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead have existed forever in eternity, relating to one another, relating perfectly, loving one another perfectly, giving honor and glory to one another perfectly forever. You think I'm going to step into that and contribute something new? No. He doesn't need us for anything. He doesn't need us, even for relationship. I think sometimes there's a, we have this thought that, he, you know, God was lonely or he, he, he made us because he, he, wanted, he wanted relationship. Not exactly. He had relationship and it was infinite and it was perfect and it was eternal. I'm not going to contribute a lot to that. So he doesn't need us for anything yet. We can glorify him and bring him joy. We can glorify him and bring him joy. The rest of our definition of God's independence, I I gave part of it earlier, is very significant for us. Here's the definition again. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Here's how it continues. Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. One theologian made this comment. God does not need us for anything, yet it is the amazing fact of our existence that he chooses to delight in us and to allow us to bring joy to his heart. This is the basis for personal significance in the lives of all God's people. To be significant to God is to be significant in the most ultimate sense. No greater personal significance can be imagined. This is stuff for worship. God has been so good to us. He doesn't need us. 
We're not filling some need for him. And yet he pours out this love. He gives us this opportunity for us to know him. We can bring joy to him. We can know him. It's incredible. This is great stuff. This, this is cause for worship right here. He doesn't need us for anything, and yet we can glorify him and bring him joy. Finally there, he had no obligation to us. He had no obligation to us. God doesn't have any obligation to us except what he has imposed on himself. Except what he has imposed on himself. Knowing these truths helps us to appreciate his grace even more. He doesn't need us for anything, yet he has graciously chosen to initiate relationship with us and to act on our behalf. We are incredibly privileged that he takes thought of us. Think about it this way. I'll conclude with this. God did not need to create anything. He didn't need creation at all. It was by his grace that he created the world and everything in it. By his grace, he made Adam and Eve in the garden. He didn't need them for anything. He already had perfect, loving, satisfying relationship between the members of the Trinity. The members of the Trinity even glorify one another. We talked about that. So he didn't need mankind to bring him glory. He didn't need us, but he created us by his grace. Then when Adam and Eve fell into sin... God had no need or obligation to let them continue to live. And certainly he didn't have any need or obligation to redeem them. And yet, by his grace, he both let them live and promised a redeemer. Likewise, God didn't need me to be a part of his family. He didn't need me to be a part of his family. He doesn't need me in the kingdom of God. He had no need or obligation to redeem me personally. And yet by his grace, he rescued me from the domain of darkness and transferred me into the kingdom of his beloved son. He had no need. Furthermore, when I rebel and I sin against him now as a Christian, he has no independent obligation to forgive me or cleanse me except for the obligation that he has placed upon himself. And we can praise the Lord for that. Deuteronomy 31, Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Though he had no need or obligation to do any of these things, for a sinful humanity. Yet because of his great grace and love, he has acted in our lives, not only to create us in the first place, but to redeem us from our sin and to sustain us as his children. We're doing theology this morning because it's worship. It's worship. We should understand better who God is and how blessed a people we are that we get to know him. He offers us relationship with him in Christ. Not because he was obligated to, but he obligated himself to. It's incredible. This is incredible. This is the stuff of worship. We, we, 
we sang about this stuff earlier. And I, I wish we could sing it again, but you don't want me to. But this is worship. God is awesome. He is independent and he is eternal. And yet he, by his grace, chose to create everything here. He chose to create you and me. And then he chose to redeem us from our sins. And he sustains that relationship because he said he would. Because he said he would. Let's pray. Father, I... I give you praise this morning that you are such a God. Lord, I rejoice that I get to know you. I rejoice that I get to have this life and I get to have this life in Christ as your child. I rejoice that you gave us your word so that we're not left in the dark about who you are and who we are and what kind of world this is. But you told us, Lord, we, we rejoice and we praise you and we give you worship today. Lord, help us to continue worshiping you. Help us to, to, to love you more. Help us to... to Continue on in this worship in our conversation as we're uh, eating together, as we're celebrating friends. Lord, help us to maintain this in our minds. Help us to come to you in worship for the rest of the day and the rest of this week and the rest of our lives, knowing that you are independent and did not need to do any of this, and yet you chose to. You're eternal and you're outside of time. You're never late. You're never rushed. You're never slow. Lord, we rejoice. Help us to worship you. Help us to give you honor in our lives. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.